Welcome to the second season of the Gutsy Health Podcast with Shanique Roney and Gina Warfel, where we share uncomplicated, practical, and affordable wellness education so you can be a self-healing champion. This episode is brought to you by the Gutsy Health Membership Program, a program that gives you inexpensive tools and resources to heal your mind, body, and soul. Visit our website at mygutsyhealth.com. Hey, you guys, welcome back to the Gutsy Health Podcast. We have a very special guest on with us today. His name is Kiran Krishnan, and he is actually the co-founder and chief scientific officer at Microbiome Labs. He's a frequent lecturer on human microbiome at health and nutrition conferences. And you guys, this dude's a walking dictionary. He knows science like the back of his hand. He's brilliant. I went to like a presentation slash training when he was in Salt Lake a few months ago, and it blew my mind, like just how this guy, he just like riffs. It's like rap with science. And so I begged his team to come on the podcast because there were so many incredible things that like even my entire team were just all blown away with this. And so I wanted to come straight from the horse's mouth because there's so much misinformation about probiotics and gut health and gut flora. And I'm hoping that we can get like the best of, well, we have the best of the best on the podcast today to help us unpack these frequently asked questions. And so we're going to be talking about spore-based probiotics versus normal. You know, uh, probiotics for pregnancy. What do all these different 5 billion versus 100 billion? Does it make a difference? And really going into the science about like why gut biome and like immune dysfunction go hand in hand together. So Kiran, welcome. Thank you so much for your time. We know you're a very busy man. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And of course, as you know, I love talking about this stuff. And the more we can empower people with this kind of information, the more, the better chance they have at, at living a healthier, better life, right? So absolutely, um, it's always a pleasure to be able to do this. Um, before we get started into our questions, I want listeners to know the story about how I found out about Microbiome Labs. I was actually... When people ask me, what is your favorite probiotic? I would always say none. I don't think they make it through the gut. I think they're a waste of money, all of this stuff. And then one of my coaches, Kelly, she told me about microbiome. Lab. She, she spoke about spore-based probiotics. She showed me the research. And I was like, what? on earth. Like it literally blew my mind. And now Microbiome Labs is actually one of my most sold products in my clinic and the store. I put almost every one of microbiome products and protocols, the gut infection protocol, the gut restoration. Sometimes I marry the two together because I just get all of these incredible results from it. And it is so, so important. And so I'm hoping that Kiran, you can explain to listeners today, like why spore-based probiotics versus normal are that much more better? Like what is happening when you're taking a normal probiotic versus a spore-based probiotic? Yeah, that's a really important question and really was the genesis of the company Microbiome Labs, right? So Mm -hmm. the big picture is that it's really about understanding how nature functions and then being just smart enough to utilize it. Right. right. Not trying to outsmart or circumvent nature. And I'll explain what I mean here. So the genesis of probiotics in general. So the first guy that's really credited with the idea of this concept of probiotics is a Russian scientist named Ily Mechnikov back in 1902. In fact, he won the Nobel Prize for his work back in 1903. What he came up with was this idea of drinking a fermented drink that had live microbes in it. And it helped a lot of his patients with all kinds of digestive issues. Mm -hmm. So he put forth the idea that there are beneficial microbes 
that can actually help our health and help our wellness. Now, that was a revolutionary idea at that time, because remember, we just came out of the post-antibiotic world where prior to antibiotics, microbes were killing people all over the world. Mm -hmm. We were having bacterial plagues, right? Millions of people are dying and, and infection was the biggest risk that we had as a species and not, not chronic illness. People didn't live until 60, 70, 80 that often to get heart disease and diabetes and so on. It was really people dying from infection. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the post-antibiotic world, after penicillin was discovered and we could control infections, the prevailing idea at that point was that microbes are bad right? And we need drugs like antibiotics to control that. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, they're going to kill us, right? Yeah. That was just, that was the idea. And then here comes this Russian scientist in the early 1900s that said, no, there's actually good microbes that can help you and actually make you healthier if you're sick. So he won the Nobel Prize for his work. And that's where the whole essence of probiotics came from. Then the word probiotic was actually coined in the 1960s by these two scientists named Lily and Stilwell, where they actually put forth this idea of microbes for life, right? Mm -hmm. So the probiotic means for life Mm -hmm. versus antibiotic means against life. And so since then, what the way probiotics had been developed is researchers and companies and nutritional uh, experts said, okay, all of these beneficial bacteria that we've come to understand are good for us are in fermented products, right? Kefirs and yogurts and things like that. So, If those are beneficial to us, why don't we just take the microbes themselves out of the ferment, out of the kefir, out of the yogurt and so on, and then isolate them, put them in a capsule and deliver the microbes themselves instead of the whole fermentation Mm -hmm. mix, Mm -hmm. right? That's where the first probiotics came from. They were all derived from dairy fermentation organisms, not from commensal organisms that lived in our gut. The idea was these are good bacteria for you because when they ferment, they do good things. And when you eat that fermented food, they're doing good things for your health. So it must be that the organisms themselves are beneficial for you. So we're going to concentrate the organisms and deliver them as a probiotic, right? Mm -hmm. So then for the next 25, 30 years, that idea just kept spiraling where they're like, if you know, and that's where lactobacillus acidophilus came from, the most commonly unknown and understood probiotic. It comes from dairy fermentation. Mm-hmm. And so people started saying, hey, if 5 billion is good, 20 billion must be better, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if 20 billion is good, 50 billion has got to be better. So we're just going to keep increasing the numbers yeah. and we're going to keep adding more and more species because that became kind of the marketing competition in the marketplace. Was any of that based off of science or was it just marketing? Zero science, only marketing. mm -hmm. Keep in mind, right? So we're talking about the impact of the probiotic on the microbiome. Mm -hmm. We didn't know anything about the microbiome until only seven, eight years ago. Wow. What? That's insane. We knew nothing about it, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, we thought that we might have something like eight species, 10 species yeah. of microbes that live in our gut. Yeah. Now we know that there are 24,000 possible species that could live mm-hmm. in our gut, yeah. right? Yep. And the reason for that is when you take out poop and you try to grow bacteria from poop to figure out what's living in your gut, mm-hmm. only a tiny fraction of the microbes that live in your gut can actually grow in an aerobic environment, which Crazy. is oxygen environment, right? Yeah. 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 So most of them, you cannot grow them out. So 
until we had all of this really advanced genetic analysis Mm -hmm. that doesn't require us to grow the organisms, we could not understand what was actually existing in our gut, right? So here we are creating probiotics to put into a system that we had no idea what the system looked like. I I once heard that we only understand like between two to 5% of gut biome. This is like three years ago. So obviously there's been more Mm -hmm. research. Maybe we know more, but what is like, what do you think? Do we know more, like more like 10% of like gut Mm -hmm. biome health? Or like, do you think we're still pretty like archaic with that? I think we're approaching 10%. Perfect. But what's good about it is even though there is a lot that we don't know yet, Mm -hmm. A few things that are really good is that some of the things that we've learned have held up to be absolutely confirmatory over the last 10 years or so of microbiome research, right? And so microbiome research really started in earnest in like 2010, 2009. That's crazy. Most of the papers didn't start coming out till about 2013. Right. And and then really the confirmation of those early studies didn't really start till around 2014 or 15. Mm -hmm. So so really our knowledge about what is in the gut is really only five to seven years old. Yeah. And imagine the vast majority of probiotics on the market were formulated and designed prior to knowing anything about the gut. Yeah. Right. They're designing products in a vacuum of information. Yep. Right. And so the uh, the whole idea of probiotics and how companies were going about it was completely nonsensical because Mm -hmm. they knew nothing about the system in which the probiotics were entering. Right. Mm -hmm. It's almost like think about it this way. It's almost like there's a building and in the building there are all kinds of tools and machinery and all that, that function within the building. Right. Right. And, And what we're trying to do is go in there and help the machinery and the function better in the building, but we have no idea what machines are in the building. Right. Right. So we're creating right. tools to help that machinery without knowing right. what machine it is. Right. Right. So we're just it's making crazy. wild guesses. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we're burning a lot we're of money. Like we're burning so much money. money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Right? That's insane. So the idea was, so the, the basic idea on the dietary supplement side for probiotics was these must be good bacteria. They don't know that they're good bacteria, right? They're mm-hmm. assuming these are good bacteria. Mm-hmm. So let's get as much of them as possible and take it in to crowd out the bad bacteria, mm-hmm. right? That was the idea. So which means that if you have a 20 billion CFU probiotic, 100 billion's got to be better mm-hmm. because that's more good bacteria to go in and crowd out the bad bacteria. Right. But that's not at all how the system works, right? Yep. Yep. And, and like you said, and you pointed out very rightfully, that vast majority of the probiotic bacteria, as we're taking them, aren't even surviving right. through the gastric system in order to get there alive, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not really functioning yep. in the system. Yep. So what we've been doing for decades now is spending our hard-earned money on billions upon billions of bacteria that are dying in the stomach, and then we're pooping them out eight to 10 hours later, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and that's really the extent of the probiotic industry. Okay. And so to us, the reason why the company exists is because when we started looking at this concept around the microbiome, and I've, I've been studying the microbiome for the last about 10 years, right? So on the early, early stages of microbiome research. And as a microbiologist, I have a unique perspective on the microbiome because that's the world I live in, right? I live in the world of microbes. So if you take like your average doctor, 
it's very hard for an average doctor to know and understand the microbiome because they don't have a mm-hmm. training mm-hmm. in that space, right? We always think of like, oh, you know, the doctor knows everything about science and is a <laughs> is a clinician. No, they have zero training in yep. that in that capacity. And their ability to understand microbial ecosystems and how all of that works is quite limited, mm-hmm. right? That's why I do in normal times, not in pandemic times, but 40, 50 lectures a year. At conferences, because all of these doctors are trying to learn this stuff, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So so keep that in mind, that it's very complex, the microbiome science. And when we started looking at it about 10 years ago, what we realized is that there's a massive opportunity to improve people's health, wellness, and lives in general, if we can do the right thing utilizing the microbiome, Mm -hmm. right? And my basic approach to it was this. First question I had to ask myself is, where do we naturally gain exposure to microbes that could act as probiotics, right? And the first rule of a microbe acting as a probiotic is it has to survive through the gastric system, right? right? Because when you look at the scientific definition of a probiotic, it starts with a live microorganism when administered in adequate amounts confers a health benefit to the host, right? Right. We know that the gastric system, the alpha amylase in the mouth, the IgA in the mouth, the uh, bile acids in the small bowel, the pancreatic enzymes in the small bowel, all of those things kill bacteria. Mm -hmm. And so the vast majority of bacteria that we're consuming are going to be killed before they get to the intestines, Right. right? And so then the question became, are there microbes in nature that function as probiotics, meaning that they actually can survive through this gauntlet? get into the intestines in a viable state, and then do something that's actually beneficial to the host, right? right? So that was our big question that we had. We asked ourselves, is there an organism that naturally does that? Mm-hmm. Because if there is an organism that nature has selected to be able to survive this gauntlet that is purposefully designed to kill microbes, right? right? If that microbe has a unique capability of surviving through this, then it must provide some sort of beneficial function in the gut. Right. right. Because through the course of evolution, it's mm-hmm. developed this unique capability of surviving yeah. through this gauntlet. And then coexisting, so right? Question. Like like we coexist with the bacteria and the bacteria coexist with us. And that's how we've evolved. Right. Like we're just like exactly. we're helping each other. So sorry. Keep going. And, and, and there's a very scientific term for that coexistence. coexistence. Mm-hmm. It's called symbiogenesis. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So symbiogenesis is like the forced Uh, relationship between different species Mm -hmm. because of proximity in a given area, right? So if you force species to live together over a long period of time, they will become symbiotic in some way or the other, right? Because collectively, it's better for both species to survive mm-hmm. if they work together than if they work against each other, exactly. right? Yep. So, so this, this concept of symbiogenesis means that in order for something to become a probiotic, we would have had to been exposed to that organism over long periods of time, mm-hmm. right? right? So right. that coexistence is a very important part of it because not any pro- bacteria that you just grab from any source whether it's from fermentation or from the ground or it's from any other source and you put it into the system, it doesn't mean it can function as a probiotic. It has to develop that capability of acting as a probiotic, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. remember, the second part of the probiotic definition is it has to confer a health benefit to the host, yeah. right? Yeah. So a bacteria having a unique function 
to confer a health benefit to the host means over time it's developed that symbiotic relationship with the host mm-hmm. where the host goes, I'll give you the ability to survive in my environment, but you have to give me a benefit mm-hmm. from that survival. Mm-hmm. Right. So we all symbiotic. have really unique bacteria makeups, right? How does anyone go about knowing what fits with their body? That's so that's that's um, that's absolutely <laughs> the right question, right, Gina? So that one of the things we learn from the human microbiome studies is at the species level, we all have very different microbiomes, right? So if you look at all three of us, if we were all to poop into boxes and send them out to the lab, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm sure we've all done in the past, um, just not collectively as a group. Uh, but if we did that and we, analyzed, <laughs> and we analyzed our microbiomes, right, what we would find is that we are maybe 50% similar mm-hmm. in our species level analysis of the microbiome. Okay. So if you have a different microbiome than I do, then how do we know what's good for your microbiome versus what's good for my microbiome, you know, and so on, right? What does each individual need from a microbial perspective? Mm-hmm. And so to answer that question, fortunately, there's about seven years worth of research that has come out that has shown that there are a few factors that are universal among everyone's microbiome that conveys health, Mm -hmm. right? And those few factors are, number one is diversity in the gut microbiome, Mm -hmm. right? The more diverse your gut microbiome is, the healthier you are, the more resilient you are against chronic illness, the better your immune system works, and the longer you will live. And that's absolutely clear from seven years worth of thousands of research papers. Number two is the presence of what we call keystone species. Mm -hmm. These are organisms within the microbiome that are so important for the structure and function of the microbiome and for the health of the host. And having high levels of these keystone species protects against disease. Do we have like a hundred type of keystone species? Is there like five? Is there 10? Like how many? Yeah. So right now there's around 12 or 13 that have been identified as being Mm -hmm. keystone like species, right? Some of the most well-known ones are acromantia mucinophila, which is inversely correlated with everything under the cardiometabolic syndrome. Mm -hmm. Cardiometabolic Mm -hmm. syndrome incorporates over 50 different conditions, right? 50 different diseases, including things like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, polycystic ovarian Mm -hmm. syndrome, you know, anxiety, dementia, all of those things. So this one organism protects against all of those conditions, right? You have another one called Fecalum bacteria prosnitsi, which is a single condition, uh, single organism that protects against things like inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's, colitis, mm-hmm. colorectal cancer, and everything that falls under the inflammatory bowel umbrella. Mm-hmm. One organism in your gut that protects against all of that, right? So cool. Now, it doesn't do it all on its own. That organism seems to be the keystone to maintaining the right population that provides us protection against those conditions, cool. right? So as it turns out, when you look at the microbiome and you try to assess what is a healthy microbiome, even, even though we all can have different species distributions within our gut, we all need these keystone species. We need them to be at high levels mm-hmm. and we all need diversity in the gut microbiome, yeah. right? That is absolutely unquestionable right now from the research. And we have, you know, somewhere around 50,000 publications in the last five, six years that touch on this subject in one way or the other. And so when we look at a functional probiotic, when we look at a bacteria that can actually make a difference in someone's health and Mm -hmm. wellness, the big question is, 
does that microbe impact diversity? And does that microbe impact the keystone species, Mm -hmm. right? Because if we really want to affect change in someone's microbiome, in their digestive health, and then in their overall health because of it, you have to be able to impact diversity and keystone species. That's one of the ways in which the spores do that. So if you take a whole bunch of generic lactobacilli, right, Mm -hmm. 100, 200 billion of them, Mm-hmm. And you throw it into the system. Of course, as we talked about, none of it's surviving. It's all just dead moving through. Mm-hmm. But let's say it all survives, just for conversation's sake. Is that 100 billion of lactobacillus genus helping diversity in any way, right? Mm-hmm. It's not because we're just inoculating our system with the single genus. Right. What about the other 150, 200 genuses that are within the system, right? right? Mm-hmm. And is it helping the growth of the keystone species? Right. That's and there's right. no evidence to show that it does that, yeah. right? And so our whole concept around probiotics hasn't been designed to impact the factors in the gut microbiome that really matter. Mm-hmm. And that's diversity and keystone species, right? Well, and even the if spores. the like, sorry, so even if the lactobacillus, uh, like you take that, you'd have to take it, let, let's say it did survive, you'd just have to keep taking it over and over and over again. And it's not really like contributing to the rest of all the other species. Whereas you're saying the, the species that you're talking about, like they're contributing in multiple functions. And so it's like, it's like one species is doing multiple things and like really contributing to the rest of it. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah. And let let me give you a little history on the, on the spores, how we even came up with this concept based on uh, previous research, right? So these bacillus endospores have been prescription probiotics since 1952, Mm -hmm. right? So they're not Mm -hmm. new in that sense, right? They've been in Germany, in France, in Latin America, parts of Asia, as prescription probiotics mm-hmm. for a long, long time, right? Mm-hmm. So they've been utilized widely across the world in hospitals, clinics, and so on. Mm-hmm. They are used as a prescription for two reasons. One is to treat gut infections. Mm-hmm. And number two mm-hmm. is to improve immune health, especially in upper respiratory mm-hmm. health in yeah. kids and adults and so on, right? So, so immune disorders and then with gut infections. Mm-hmm. Now, how the gut infection part of it came about is quite interesting. One of the early stories on this. So when the German army was in North Africa during World War II, most of the soldiers were dying of dysentery, mm-hmm. right? They were drinking contaminated water and so on. And so what they realized was that the locals, when they would get gut infections, one of the things they would do is they would go and eat dried camel dung. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And the dried camel dung had something in it that helped their gut infection and, and the sickness, right? And so Amazing. they took lots of sample of camel dung back in Germany, and they discovered through the analysis that what was actually providing the benefit to these individuals was a bacillus subtilis spore mm-hmm. in the camel mm-hmm. dung, right? Wow, interesting. The camels so cool. were picking it up. Yeah, through the environment so as cool. they graze and eat around the environment, mm-hmm. it became a commensal organisms in the camel, and then they would, of course, poop it out in, in a certain amount. And so then they isolated the species, and they created a prescription drug to deal with gut infections that was far better than most antibiotics at the time. Amazing. right? And part of the reason why it was better is because the spores are very targeted in their approach mm-hmm. of getting the infectious agent, right? You know, an antibiotic, when you take it, it kills everything, Everything. right? Mm -hmm. And then the infectious agent is just part of the dying off, but all the good stuff dies off too. Yeah. Yeah. But when you use a spore, only 
the bad infectious agent goes down. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the reason for that, and, and this was mysterious, right? It's like, how do they go in and know just to go after the infectious agent, right? Yeah. How is it that they don't harm the rest of the microbes? Well, as it turns out, these bacillus endospores have this unique capability called quorum sensing, mm-hmm. where once they get into the gut, they can read the microbial signatures of all the different bacteria and understand who is there and in what amounts. Mm-hmm. And when they find an overgrowth of dysfunctional bacteria, they will actually go sit next to those bacteria and produce antimicrobials and other compounds to actually bring down the growth of those microbes. That is so right? cool. Wow. Holy Which is taking me back to microbiology class. Oh I never gosh. thought this was going to come up again. <laughs> you heard that in microbiology, right? The, the quorum yeah. sensing? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. really quite remarkable when you think about it. Wow. And we did a study on this with C. diff, right? You guys mm-hmm. know Clostridium difficile yeah. infection. It's mm-hmm. a big prevalent thing. I think in the U.S., somewhere around 20,000, 30,000 people a year die from Clostridium infection. Can you explain uh, to people is, what that is, is really fast? It's because like yeah, people should understand this. Yeah, it's a pathogenic bacteria called mm-hmm. Clostridium difficile. Mm-hmm. The, the presumption is that it, it does live at low levels naturally in your gut. Yeah. But when you take multiple courses of antibiotics and it brings down a lot of your good bacteria, mm-hmm. it allows this opportunistic pathogen to start to proliferate, right? Mm-hmm. So C. diff infection is a factor of taking antibiotics. Yeah. And if the C. diff starts to overgrow and take over the space, it is really toxigenic. It produces two really horrific toxins in your gut. It causes massive bleeding within Mm -hmm. the large intestine. It eats away at the gut lining. And there's a certain number of people, I think somewhere around 25,000 people a year that die from it. Mm -hmm. And there's there's hundreds of thousands of infections a year. Mm -hmm. Um, They use a combination of antibiotics to try to treat it again. And then now stool uh, fecal transplants are one of the more prevailing treatments for it, right? So it's a big problem. It's a really horrific infection to have because Mm -hmm. a lot of times people will have it forever, for long periods of time, right? It just keeps coming back. Mm -hmm. And so we were interested in like the ability to spores, if they have this capability of quorum sensing, can they seek out something as bad as C. diff Mm -hmm. and can they affect it in any way, right? So we did a study with Cleveland Clinic, which has been published now for a year. And what we saw is in the C. diff infection, when you put the spores in, the spores will actually go into the system. It'll seek out the C. diff. And when it finds C. diff, what it does is they surround the C. diff like covered wagons surrounding them. So cool. Yeah. And, And here's what's so interesting. Clostridium is also a spore. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty tough bacteria in itself, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of antibiotics don't affect it. So mm-hmm. these these bacillus spores, the probiotic spores, have figured out a way to starve mm-hmm. out the C. diff because it's not as susceptible to antimicrobials that the, that the probiotic might produce. Yeah. So here's what it does. C. diff, one of the reasons why it causes bleeding is it eats away at the gut lining because it's trying to get blood. Yeah. It requires mm-hmm. iron from yep. blood. Metabolism, right? Mm. So that's why it causes bleeding because it's eating away trying to get at the blood supply. What the probiotic has figured out to do over millions of years of symbiogenesis in order to protect the host is it produces an agent that chelates iron away from C. diff. That's so cool. In that little micro environment, right? Thereby starving out the C. diff over a short period of time. That is amazing. And so we saw. 
right? It's mind boggling when you think about it. It's amazing. Like, yeah, it's like out of a sci-fi movie. I'm not even kidding. Like, how are these micro, like single organisms doing this? It's incredible. Well, you're talking a lot about like what, how they, how they act specifically as spores. Just real quick. Can you explain the difference between a spore versus a not spore? Can you kind of give us an idea of what that means? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's that's really important to address. So there's a number of organisms uh, that are considered to be spore-forming bacteria. It's a mm-hmm. unique capability of the bacteria. It's, it's not a lot of organisms that can do this. There's a small handful of them that can do that. What that means is normally when they're multiplying and growing and fermenting, doing all the things that bacteria normally do, they look like any other bacteria right? Mm-hmm. They have a cell a cell membrane structure to them. You look at them under a microscope. In this case, they are rod-shaped bacteria, but they look like lots of other bacteria. Now, what, what's unique about them is when they are under stress, meaning the environment's not ideal for them to grow, or in the case of gut-based spore bacteria, when they come out of the body, which is they're outside of their normal environment, and they're now exposed to sunlight and desiccation and all kinds of things outside, they can actually cover themselves in a protein calcified armor. And that protein calcified armor provides them protection against things that would kill most other bacteria. Right. So they are very, very stable. They're not metabolically active. So they've gone into a dormant state. The moment they sense that the environment that they're entering in is not ideal for their growth, they will go into this dormant state. They will cover themselves with this armor and they can remain in that state indefinitely until they get back to a favorable environment. Right. So that would be like, for example, ingesting it in your stomach, maybe, is this right that they would maybe sense that their stomach acid and they go into this protective shell and that's how they make it through the gut? Yeah. So when you look at uh, spores that are gut Mm -hmm. commensal organisms, meaning they natively live in the gut, when you find them in the outside environment, they're always in the spore state. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the outside environment is not their ideal, normal right. environment. Right. So there's they've left the gut through defecation. And here's the super interesting thing about spores. As they're reaching the terminal end of the large intestine, they know they're leaving the gut. So they automatically already go into the spore state. Cool. Right. So when you look at them in the in the main part of this large intestine, they're always in the bacterial what we call vegetative state, which is a mm-hmm. state in which bacteria are active. As they move down through mm-hmm. defecation, through stool moving through, as they get to the end of this large intestine, they automatically go into the spore state. Mm-hmm. When they come out of the gut, they're already in the spore state. Yeah. And then let's say you walk through the woods and you had to poop and you pooped in the woods, right? And so when you pooped mm-hmm. in the woods, all the spores in your gut are going to come out and be in the spore state. So then they're sitting there on the dirt in mm-hmm. the spore state. Yeah. The next person comes along, let's say 10 years later, 15 years later, 100 years later, or 5 million years later, wow. and they pick up that, that spore, right, just by touching the yeah. dirt or something and getting it into their system, That's it'll remain in the spore state going through the gastric system. The moment it hits the small intestine, it does what I call a molecular handshake. It has little receptors on the outside of the spore to know when it's in the small intestine. The moment it hits that small intestine, it'll come out of that spore state Mm -hmm. within about 20 minutes. That's so cool. And then it's regular functioning probiotic cell. Now, keep in mind, right, these spores... We're going to go off on a crazy nerd tangent here for a Love moment, it. if you bear with Let's me. Let's do it. But I think yep. it's super interesting information, right? These spores 
are identified in numerous publications as the likely origins of cellular life on planet Earth. Amazing. Right? Mm-hmm. So keep this in mind. It's, it's ancient. There's a, there's a whole theory called panspermia. Mm-hmm. If you look at the theories of panspermia and all the studies around it, the idea is where did the basic building blocks of cellular life, like amino acids or nucleic acids, which are part of our DNA and RNA, mm-hmm. where did they come from? Were they you know, miraculously generated in the primordial soup on early yeah. Earth? Or was Earth seeded with these building blocks from meteor strikes and mm-hmm. things like that, right? Mm-hmm, right. And the, the prevailing idea is that Earth was seeded with these primary building blocks from meteorite strikes. That's then so the cool. question becomes, what kind of existing organisms today could have survived interstellar travel on, on a, a meteorite, meteorite yes. to see the Earth, right? Yes. And there's publications showing that Bacillus subtilis, one of the main spores that we use, can survive interstellar travel for at least seven years. That's insane. Wow. Like that is insane. blowing my mind right now. This is so, so then once cool. it gets in your gut, does it does it stay there? Does it like its environment or does it leave and then we need more? How does that happen? Yeah. So here's our life cycle in the gut. And this is also super interesting when you look at it, right? So so they're in the spore state. So they're inactive. They've been in that spore state. It could be 100 million years. And I'll give you a a cool factoid about that, too. But they're in the spore state going through your mouth, through your stomach. The moment they get to the small intestine, they know that they're in the small intestine. So they come out of the spore state and they start functioning as a probiotic cell. So then in the small intestine, they're metabolically active. They're already reading the microbial environment to see who's in the small intestine who should be there, who shouldn't be there. They start adjusting the environment. They, in fact, start producing compounds to help the good bacteria grow, and they start competing with and bringing down the bad bacteria. At the same time, they're making digestive enzymes for the host. Mm. They're They're making carotenoids. They're making B vitamins. They're Mm. making things like vitamin K2. They're doing all that for you in your small intestine, like a little nutrient factory, helping you digest your food, break down your food, get nutrients, absorb nutrients, compete with the bad bacteria, increase the growth of the good bacteria. So then they they tumble through over a period of a couple of days, Mm. the small intestine. When they get to the terminal end of the small intestine, this is really unique. This is in the ileum of the small intestine, right? They actually go back into the spore state for a moment. Uh And the big question has been, why do they do that, right? Uh They're not in a dangerous environment. It's not necessary for them to be protected that way. Uh So why do they go back into the spore state at the very end of the small intestine? Keep in mind, when they finally get to the large intestine, they come back out of the spore state, right? Uh As it turns out, In the terminal end of your small intestine, there's lots of immune tissues called the Peyer's patches, Mm -hmm. right? And the Peyer's patches are some of the most prolific and important immune tissues in your body where stimulation of the Peyer's patches actually proliferates the formation of T cells and B cells and all that. The spores in spore state actually have a different type of immune stimulation for the host than when they're a vegetative state. And in fact, the spore state can be said to be even more immune stimulatory and supportive than the vegetative state. So they've learned over the millions of years of symbiogenesis with us that the host needs this interaction in that part of our gut. And for that reason, 
They go back into the spore state temporarily. They interact with our immune tissue and our immune cells. They upregulate the formation of our T cells and B cells, which are critical for mm-hmm. immune function. And once they've moved past that immune tissue and they're entering the large intestine, they come back out of the spore state and go back to a metabolically active cell. My right. brain is literally it's, exploding. It's, it's, it's exploding, right. but it also reminds me like the intelligence of these bacteria. It's just like, you know, the, the biphospholipid membrane of a cell that mm-hmm. is constantly totally. taking in information and allowing things in and out all the time. And like the complexity and the intelligence of these organs, like I am mind blown, like mind blown right now. I, Gina, are you, or did you already know yeah, all this? And so, <laughs> No, no, I'm completely mind blown. <laughs> totally. And so what I'm wondering is, is this an immune beneficial to the immune system since it is just the T regulatory cells, right? Where yep. is it beneficial, whether it's autoimmunity versus somebody who has a suppressed immune system or fighting a chronic infection? Or can you kind of explain when you say, is it beneficial across the boards that anyone who needs immune support is like, yes, this is what I want. Yep, it is. So it is beneficial across the board because what they do is they increase the expression of pattern recognition receptors. Pattern recognition receptors are things like toll-like receptor 4, toll-like receptor 2. All of these pattern recognition receptors allows the immune system to study and learn who is existing within the microbiome. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a translation of the microbiome from the spores to the immune system. So the spores are helping the immune system understand who's there and who it should actually target. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, Mm -hmm. there are studies that show that when the spores interact with the immune cells and increase these pattern recognition receptors, it helps the immune system target infectious bacteria and viruses. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a tutoring or training of the immune system. And it does. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. an important thing, Gina. It does also increase the expression of the Treg system, which is, of course, critically important Mm -hmm. to suppressing all the unfavorable immune responses that occur. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So it does both of those. Um, It increases interleukin 10, which is an anti-inflammatory cytokine. It Mm -hmm. increases pattern recognition. So it's that modulation and tutoring of the immune system that is critically important. So this is why when we say 70 to 80% of the immune system is the gut flora, it's the microbiome. This is why, because through like chemotaxis and exactly what you're talking about, like the microbiome, these bacteria are literally sending out chemicals and messengers to white blood cells to be smarter to be more targeted like this is what's happening and so that's why your microbiome is so so important and that's why when we take tons of antibiotics or we eat foods that destroy your microbiome you are now hit up with like inflammatory cascades all over your body and your brain and your joints and your organs and all of these things. And so what you are describing right now explains to everyone like why this is so important. And like, so I want to quickly share a story before you go. I quickly learned in my practice that everyone that came to me had extensive use of antibiotics. And so I changed my intake form to say how many antibiotics did you take as a baby, as a kid, as a teenager, as an adult. And nine out of 10 times when people walk in my clinic and they fill that out, they've done tons of rounds of antibiotics. And I'm like, well, that's why you're here because your immune system is so dysregulated and it's so destroyed from when you were like a toddler, when you were five, when you were 10, like it was completely blasted and now we're still picking up the pieces. And so what you're talking about right now is exactly the damage control that we are trying to do in the clinic. 
exactly that. Yeah, absolutely. And and to put a finer point on that, right? So the, I call the microbiome the eyes and ears of the immune system. Mm, I love that. Keep in mind, that the, right? And the immune system is the only system in your body that is continuously adapting to the environment that you're in, mm-hmm. right? So let's say you're living right now in Seattle, Washington, and, and you've got, you know, you're surrounded by the allergens and all the things in the environment in Seattle. And then all of a sudden you move to Arizona. Mm-hmm. It's a very different environment and it's the job of your immune system to adapt to that new environment, right? Mm-hmm. Because your body is now going to be exposed to different types of things and your immune system is supposed to figure out whether or not it has to attack those things mm-hmm. or become tolerant to those things, right? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be able to read your environment. But right. keep in mind, your immune system is not outward facing. Yeah, The immune system cannot see the environment that yeah. you're in. The immune system does not have any clue what the environment looks like that you're in. Wow. It gets all of the information about what your environment is like exactly. from the microbiome. Yeah. Mm. Right. The microbiome is at the very top layer yes. of your digestive tract. Yes. Right. And everything you ingest. Everything. Every, so when you're in an mm-hmm. environment, right, everything around you goes, ends up in your digestive tract. Your right. Yeah. And I'll give you examples why, because of course, all the food you eat and drink from the environment and you pick up all of the environmental factors onto that food and drink. Mm-hmm. Also everything you breathe in. Mm-hmm. So remember when you breathe, Right. Uh, And your air goes into your lungs. You have mucus in your lungs to capture all the particulate matters that came in with the air. Mm -hmm. And then when the mucus captures it, you have something called the mucociliary elevator where all of those cilia move all of that mucus with all of the captured particles up away from your lungs. And then into your throat Mm -hmm. and you swallow it. Mm -hmm. Right. Everything that enters your ears or eyes drains through your station tube or the back of your head into your throat, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So everything that you get exposed to in a new environment ends up in your gut. Yep. And it's the microbes that see it first. Mm -hmm. It's not the immune system. The microbes translate to your immune system what it's seeing in the environment and teaches the immune system what it should tolerate and what it needs to attack. That's so cool. Interesting. Microbes provide that information. And so if your microbiome is decimated, Mm-hmm. Your immune system is blind mm-hmm. and your immune system simply takes on the role of attacking everything. I, right? I call it the and drunk conductor. Actually, I always say like the mm-hmm. conductor of the symphony, you know, if your microbiome is healthy, it's a normal conductor conducting this beautiful symphony of white blood cells. But when it's not, when it's like dysregulated, now you have this drunk conductor, like conducting like drunk music. That's exactly <laughs> how I describe it. It's a great idea. And it's so, a great, no, great so the white blood cells are just wreaking havoc everywhere because they're getting all the wrong messages and all the wrong chemical like messengers because the bad bacteria what i call is like they're at the king of the castle and they are like Mm -hmm. they're drunk so sorry keep going kiran i'm i'm so sorry i'm just so excited about this right now because listeners need to know this analogy yeah and so so let's think about dysbiosis and when Mm -hmm. we say your microbiome is decimated what we don't mean is that you have no microbes in there right you will always have microbes in there at very high density Mm -hmm. it's just which microbes are there at what level right? right now so here's another way for people to understand this If you have dysbiosis, Mm -hmm. which means that you have an imbalance of good and bad bacteria Mm -hmm. because of lots of antibiotics, poor diet choices, lifestyle choices, and so on, what you tend to have is a higher level of opportunistic organisms. These Mm -hmm. are pathogens that do exist in the gut microbiome normally, but they Mm -hmm. tend to be at very low levels, and most of the good commensals 
keep them under okay. control, mm-hmm. right? And in some cases, when they're at low levels, they can actually be quite beneficial. Yeah. But the moment they're allowed to exceed a certain level, they go from being beneficial to being problematic, right? right? And so when you disrupt your gut microbiome through poor diets and all that, what you're doing is giving an opportunity for the dysfunctional bacteria to prevail, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I can give a finer point to this on antibiotics. So, for example, one of the things that keeps the dysbiotic or the opportunistic bacteria under control is the acidity of the digestive tract, mm-hmm. right? So the pH of the digestive tract. Most of these opportunistic organisms like a much higher pH, mm-hmm. right? They don't like a very acidic environment. Lots of good bacteria in your gut produce lactic acid. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they do that regularly to maintain a lower pH, which suppresses the growth of things like yeast, mm-hmm. right, fungus, mm-hmm. protozoa, and then opportunistic bacteria. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of those are kept in check because of lactic acid production. Let's say you take a single dose of antibiotics. Studies show within about three hours of one dose of antibiotics, mm-hmm. about 99.9% of all the bacteria die. Down mm. to mm. single cells almost, yeah. right? Wow. Now, wow. So they start bouncing back. However, wow. now when they're all dead, what mm-hmm. happens in that environment? All of the lactic acid bacteria that are were Making alive and producing are now dead. Mm-hmm. So we have no more lactic acid being produced, right? Yes. So what happens is the pH of that environment Increases. goes up a little bit oh, higher. Oh gosh, yeah. So, right? So as these bacteria are coming back to life the opportunistic organisms now have a bit of a leg up because mm-hmm. they're coming back into an environment with a higher pH, yeah. right? Yep. So now they're doing better. This is a better environment for them. Mm-hmm. So then they come back. Then you take the second dose of antibiotic, Boom. all of them die down again. And then the opportunistics can grow back even faster yep. because the pH is even higher now, right? Yep. So that's one example of how imbalance occurs where over time you end up with lots of opportunistic bacteria taking control of the system. Here's the problem with opportunistic bacteria. They don't like working with the immune system, Mm -hmm. right? And the reason is what they're looking for, they are opportunistic because they're looking for the right opportunity to turn on their virulence factors. Mm -hmm. And the best opportunity for them to turn on their virulence factors is when the immune system is suppressed. Yeah. Because when they turn on their immune, their virulence factors, their their toxin genes, and so on, if the immune system is functioning well, the immune system will detect them and shut them down Mm -hmm. immediately, right? Mm -hmm. So they are not going to help boost the immune system and provide the correct information to the immune system because they are sitting around waiting for the immune system to get further suppressed. Yeah. So here's one of the one of the examples of when that happens, right? So now I'm dysbiotic. I've taken multiple courses of antibiotics. I've had poor diet choices. Now I've got lots of overgrowth of opportunistic organisms. Mm -hmm. I feel stress from something, right? School, work, whatever it may be. That increase in cortisol from stress Mm -hmm. actually will suppress your immune system. The release of epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol will suppress your immune system further. That then becomes a signal for my opportunistic organisms to go, hey, this is the right time to turn on our toxin genes. And so they start proliferating, Mm -hmm. right? So now Mm -hmm. their numbers get even higher. Mm -hmm. I've got more inflammation. I've got more leaky gut. And now that stress signal is setting me up for other issues like metabolic dysfunction, Mm. autoimmune conditions, uh, food sensitivities, and so on, right? Mm -hmm. That's how the whole system goes awry. Yes. And so 
that that's a whole key to disease, right? Amazing. I do this lecture and I've done yeah. it for now for two or three years where I go through for, for doctors and health practitioners yeah. how the vast majority of chronic illnesses that we have to deal with stem from the same root cause. Yeah. And it's the same dysbiosis that leads to intestinal permeability, chronic low-grade inflammation, and that mm-hmm. becomes the foundation of all kinds of chronic illnesses that are seemingly unrelated illnesses, right? Yeah. So you take reflux disease and diabetes. Mm-hmm. They couldn't present more differently, right? Mm-hmm. And right. if you ask most doctors and go, hey, doc, what does my reflux have to do with my diabetes? They'd say, say nothing. absolutely nothing. Your diabetes mm-hmm. is in your pancreas, mm-hmm. right? Your reflux is your upper GI. Mm-hmm. Or what does my depression have to do with my diabetes? They'd say mm-hmm. nothing. One's in your head, one's in your pancreas. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely not true. There's enough research that shows that reflux, depression, diabetes, all of these seemingly unrelated conditions are driven by the same root cause, Mm -hmm. right? And whether that root cause turns into diabetes or depression depends on lifestyle factors, certain genetic factors, and other things that are influencing your surrounding, right? Yes. But it's all the same root cause. So if we can just deal with that original dysbiosis, Mm -hmm. which leads to intestinal permeability and and that lack of diversity within the microbiome, that overgrowth of opportunistic organisms, that low level of keystone species, those are the characteristics of a dysfunctional gut Mm -hmm. that lead to or create the foundation for disease. And so all of the things we've been talking about spores and how like, insanely magical they are in terms of their abilities, right? Yeah. They have developed the capability of addressing our dysbiosis, Mm -hmm. right? We have, in fact, outsourced that function to these kind of bacteria. We don't have an internal mechanism to fix our own dysbiosis, right? If our Mm -hmm. microbiome goes off, we don't have an internal mechanism where our body tries to fix the microbiome. We can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're screwed. So are the, are the spores food. in are the spores in food? Is it helpful to eat fermented foods or is it just like the probiotics? They're destroyed as well. Um, the spores, they're used in two or three known fermented foods. One is in natto, the Japanese food natto, mm. which uses Bacillus subtilis mm-hmm. natto. And then there are some fermented cheeses. There are some fermented sausages that also use bacillus. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, you're supposed to pick them up in the environment. Yeah. Right. And, and we uh, live so in very really sterilized. Not doing no. Much benefit. No. Like no. we're not r- running out in the wild anymore. We're not like, if anything, when exactly. we are at a park, it's been sprayed with herbicides and pesticides and all kinds of chemicals. Yeah. And so, and those directly completely destroy our microbiome. I kind of want to yeah. like, I want to touch on something before we go back to you, Kiran, but nine out of 10 people, when I do like uh, polls on my Instagram stories, nine out of 10 people have digestive issues. I think research mm-hmm. shows eight out of 10 people across America have digestive issues. And the reason why that is, is because of our, well, when you mentioned stress, but it's starting with like our babies, like their first foods is like Mm -hmm. cereals and cereals are drenched in glyphosate. They are very inflammatory foods and like glyphosate that is sprayed on wheat crops, you know, that directly destroys your microbiome. So we're literally like microdosing babies on like antibiotic chemicals 
from the time that yeah. they're six months old. And so it's no wonder mm-hmm. by the time they're four, they have digestive issues. By the time they're 12, they have hormonal imbalances and sleep disorders and all of these things. And it's, it's starting from young and we are completely unaware of it. And then think about like when you take your kids to the park and they're playing on a beautifully manicured field that has been sprayed <laughs> with herbicides and pesticides just that morning, you know, and they're rolling around in it and they're eating that dirt. Like before when they ate dirt, it had microorganisms, but now like our soils are so depleted and they, they're absent of micro, like any kind of microbiome. And so we're living in this right. very chemically like heavy, it's disgusting environment that's hyper sterilized. And that is reflecting yeah. what's going on in our gut. And so that's why nine out of 10 people have digestive issues. And I'm seeing it more and more in children. And it's, it's shocking. Mm. It's scary. Like people should mm. be alarmed by this. Right. And that's why the work that you're doing and the products that you're coming out with, like I put almost like nine out of 10 of my clients, I put them on a gut infection or a gut restoration protocol, like immediately. And so listeners, if you're listening, like, I hope like you have access to that. Go to the website, Provo Health, log into your accounts, like, and get on it. Like I, I did a whole podcast about the gut restoration protocol last year, November or December, like listen to it because this Mm -hmm. is so, so important. Sorry. Kiran, back to you. I'm, yeah. I'm off my can I, or Are we still rolling with this? I do. I want to ask a gut testing question, but I yeah. don't want to end, cut us off too soon. If yeah. we're still... no, so let me make a, a couple quick statements so that it, it really yeah, yeah. for people to understand, right? Mm-hmm. And, and understand why the spores are so important, why it's so important to get this back in our system. Mm-hmm. As we've talked about, right, the dysbiosis. So once your gut starts to get imbalanced, and, and as you mentioned, that happens from a very early stage. In fact, it starts to happen in utero because you can find glyphosate roundup in cord blood of newborn babies, right? So it's it's getting in there. And 33% of uh, babies born are born through Mm C-section. So they're not getting the normal inoculum that babies are supposed to get to begin with. And then, and then most kids by the age of uh, four have, have had at least four or five rounds of antibiotics, Mm -hmm. right? So it starts very, very early. On top of that, if you look at every known health condition that is associated with a dysfunctional gut, so if you look at autism spectrum disorders, allergies and asthma, food sensitivities, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, dementia, Alzheimer's, all of these things, autoimmune disease, right? 25, 30 years ago, we had like 28 autoimmune diseases. Now it's over 100. Now we have over 110. Yes. We've created new diseases for ourselves to deal with in the last few decades. So it's, it's, and all of those are related to the gut. So when you look at all of the conditions that are related to gut being the driver, all of those continue to skyrocket and Mm -hmm. and prevail, right? Asthma is an absolute epidemic among young kids. There Mm -hmm. are more than 10 million severely asthmatic kids Uh, in the U.S. at the moment, and the number is just increasing. So we cannot stress enough Mm -hmm. how we are a microbial system, right? We are designed as a microbial system, and we've taken this beautiful microbial system and put it in an antimicrobial world. Yep, 100%. We have built an anti-human world. Yeah. So everything we do hurts that balance. Okay, so now we know. The balance is really creating massive problems. And yes, go ahead. I, I want to quickly say that since the 90s, children's allergens have tripled. Mm-hmm. Like children are intolerant to eating food now. And like that is terrifying. And it's all because of everything that you're saying. And it's getting worse. Yep. Like we are not trending in the right direction. Right. We're not. And just talking about the human species in general. Right. Mm-hmm. Fertility. Fertility is oh, such yeah. an important part of the propagation of our species. Mm-hmm. Right. 
fertility in women have reduced has reduced by almost 30% yeah. in the last yeah. two or three decades, yeah. right? And in men, sperm counts have reduced 50% yep. in the last 30 years. Yep. Both of those are related to the gut microbiome, mm-hmm. right? And so our ability to make new humans is declining. Yep. And when we do make humans, our ability to make healthy humans is declining, mm-hmm. right? And part of that is this loss of what, what I call uh, the mass extinction of the microbiome because most of our metabolic functionality comes from the microbiome, right? Mm-hmm. There are some estimates that say 90% of all of the biochemical and metabolic capabilities of being human, functioning mm-hmm. as a human, comes from the microbes in your gut right. because we only have about 22,000 functional genes mm-hmm. in our system, right? In our chromosomes. These are the genes that do all kinds of things, functions for us. But we have over two and a half million microbial genes in our guts, in our microbiome. Right. So the vast majority of genetic capability comes from the microbiome. And we have lost almost half of the species in our microbiome over the last several decades. Mm-hmm. When you look at the current hunter-gatherer tribes like in Papua New Guinea and uh, the Hadza tribe in Tanzania that live more of the ancient, what our ancestors lived, the, mm-hmm. the type of lifestyle, they have more than double the diversity than the modern human does, right? So we've lost species completely from our microbiome. And here's the scariest part about that. As we lose organisms from our microbiome, we lose functionality, Mm -hmm. right? We lose capability and we lose resilience. So what we are doing as a species is we're passing down to our kids a depleted ecosystem, which has a loss of functionality. That's the same as thinking about how the next generation of kids will be born without a spleen because of our choices today. And the generation after that will be born without a spleen and with with only one kidney. If we looked at it from that perspective, we'd go, holy crap, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a big danger, but it's it's the same thing. Right, Because the microbiome is a significant organ Mm -hmm. that provides us functionality and we're depleting it from generation to generation. We are the recipients of an amazing microbiome that has been honed in by millions of years of difficult coevolution for our human ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. They have become stewards and shepherds of this microbiome that they've passed on to us. Yep. And we are not being good stewards of those of that ecosystem to pass right. on to our kids. So health and wellness is going to get more and more difficult as we move on. So one thing I wanted to say about the spores, one more thing is we know that the balance in the microbiome is absolutely critical to health and wellness. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that extensively, right? I've also said that we don't have an internal system to rebalance our microbiome. We don't, we can't do that. We don't have the capability. If our microbiome is imbalanced right now, we have lots of opportunistic organisms. It's going to stay that way Mm -hmm. until we intervene with something else from the outside. Right? So we have actually outsourced that function to microbes in the environment, Mm -hmm. like these spores, because they can go in, they can read the microbial environment, and actually figure out who's overgrown, who's yeah. underrepresented, and then make those changes yeah. in your gut yeah. that have all kinds of health impact. So we've outsourced it. And the reason we've outsourced it is because in nature, we live with these organisms, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least we used to. Yeah. That's the key. We don't right? live in nature anymore. Nature, 
Exactly. Nature never foresaw that at some point we're going to divorce ourselves from the ecosystem. We don't even eat nature. This arms like Like, we what? We don't even eat nature anymore. Like you know, like when when we used to eat fruits and vegetables that fed the microbiome, it fed our bodies. We don't even coexist with like healthy food. Like we don't live in nature. We don't eat nature. We are so artificially like powered now. It's no wonder we're like laden with disease. You know, it just. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Yeah. And so I want to bring back a point I said, which you might not even remember early on in the conversation, where I Mm -hmm. said that when we looked at probiotics, we were just smart enough to understand what nature has created and utilize that. Right. Mm -hmm. That was the approach we took. We said, what is nature's true probiotic? And that's how we went about probiotic development. We realized through this kind of narrative that we just talked through today, but we did it in a research format over years, Mm -hmm. we realized what we're really missing is our connection to these environmental bacteria, ones Mm -hmm. that we're supposed to pick up in the environment that act as commensal organisms that can change our microbiome. Right. And all in the way, all the ways that they change and affect the microbiome are immensely advanced. Mm -hmm. We couldn't engineer them to do that. You couldn't give me enough money and enough researchers to engineer a bacteria to do what they do. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Because they have perfected this function over millions Millions. of years of coevolution with the human species. We just have to be smart enough to identify that and go, okay, we need to put those guys back into our system. Right. That's what we did. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then we studied it to go, is there a benefit in putting them back in? And sure enough, through 12 published studies now, we've shown that there's immense benefit mm-hmm. in putting it. And even beyond the published studies, what's right. even better is the actual empirical evidence that you have with your clients. Right. right? That's where mm-hmm. the rubber really hits the road. 100%. Changing people's lives, seeing that difference mm-hmm. when we can shift their microbiome, seeing those changes that occur in them. So that's the genesis of the company. And this is why spores are so important. I want to ask one more question about pregnancy and probiotics and gut health, because Mm -hmm. at this training, you spoke about how the neurological development of babies is super dependent on the presence of certain bacteria being there from mom. Research shows that babies are exposed to mom's microbiome and whatever is present helps with their development. And so you're seeing that with lessened microbial diversity, we're getting more and more children being born with like ADHD and autism. And so can you touch on that a little bit? And like women and whoever's listening, if your friend is pregnant, please go out and buy them the gut restoration kit and make sure they are taking that throughout their entire pregnancy. Because so many people ask me, are these probiotics and these protocols safe for pregnancy? Yes, yes, yes. And hell yes, they are. So yes. Kiran, can, can, can you please explain to us like, what is that neurological connection with you mentioned certain bacterial strains and how they're there yeah. and how they can you explain that to listeners? Yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, not only are they safe for pregnancy, they're critically important for mm-hmm. pregnancy. Yeah. Right. So yes, one of the great examples of that is bacterial peptidoglycan. One of the things we've realized with pregnancy is that there are a number of microbial compounds that the gut bacteria produce that are really important stimulus for fetal development when the baby's in utero. Mm -hmm. One of those critical ones is something called peptidoglycan. And so certain bacteria within the gut produce these compounds called peptidoglycans, and they produce it as like a coating on their outer cell, uh, cell structure, and then they excrete it to a certain degree as well. Now, what's so interesting is the placenta contains receptors and transporters for bacterial 
peptidoglycan, right? And then the baby's brain in utero as a baby's developing also contains receptors and transporters for bacterial peptidoglycan. So mom's gut bacterial byproducts are such important stimuli for the baby that the placenta and the baby's brain has receptors to find and receive these so cool. compounds. And, and the studies show, right, which is, which is crazy so cool. when you think about it. So cool. Like the development of the human brain and central nervous system is dependent on bacteria. Yeah. It's so crazy it's when you think about it. Probably when we get more research, we're going to find way more things are so like the development of much more things in our body are super dependent mm-hmm. on bacteria. Yeah, we know that when the baby's born, for example, the development of the lymphoid tissue in mm-hmm. the gut, which is the majority of the immune system, is also dependent on bacteria. Mm-hmm. It's dependent on bacteroides fragilis and spores. In mm-hmm. fact, studies show that the exposure to spores early on helps build the immune system, Amazing. the physical structures of the immune system, right? Yeah. And, and this is one of the things that really interests me about babies. And one of the things I've always wondered about even decades ago was how come as a human, the baby still has this natural tendency to sample the world with their mouth, right? right? Yes. And that's, a, that's an unusual human trait, right? Mm-hmm. We don't see something new as adults and, and look at it and then try to figure it out by putting it in our mouth, right? right? It's not a normal right. human action. We are tactile and visual, mm-hmm. but babies everything goes in their mouth. Because if you imagine an ancestral baby being born, put in the dirt, mm-hmm. the baby's inoculating him, yeah. him or herself with the environment mm-hmm. by putting everything in their mouth, right? Yep. And we now know that that inoculation and exposure to the environment is critically important for the development of the baby's immune structure. Mm-hmm. And so... Our babies today, you know, the moment they drop their pacifier, moms are sterilizing it yeah. and putting it back in the baby's mouth. Ugh. That has a difference. In fact, yeah. there's a study on this. There's a study following two sets of moms, moms that when the baby drops a pacifier, will take the pacifier, put it in their mm-hmm. own mouth and clean it and then give it to the baby. And then the moms that wipe it and sterilize it and give it back to the baby. They followed these moms they followed the babies for a number of years afterwards. They found that the moms that used their own mouth to clean the pacifier had babies with far reduced incidence of allergies and asthma. Amazing. Right? Yep, yep. Huge difference mm-hmm. in that one little tiny behavior. And so at the end of the day, what we know in utero development of one of the most, arguably the most important part of the human, the central nervous system and the brain yeah. is dependent on exposure to the right type of bacteria from mom's gut. Yeah. And the only way you will know if you're getting those right, if you have that right type of bacteria is by increasing the diversity within your gut microbiome, right? right. right? Getting mm-hmm. that competition for the opportunistic bacteria in place so that they come down, increasing all the good bacteria and all of the comp that they make, that's going to provide a little bit more insurance mm-hmm. that your baby's getting exposure to the right compounds that's going to help build the baby's brain and central nervous system yeah. and so on. And that's part of why we're seeing underdeveloped brains and central nervous systems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If the baby doesn't get enough exposure of these byproducts in the gut, right. in utero, when they're, when they're being developed, they're going to come out with underdeveloped systems and they'll even develop demyelination they don't have good myelination on their nerves so then they you know their neurological system doesn't function like normal right the signals get lost and so they have ticks and they have all these kinds of things that occur behavioral disorders anxiety disorders Mm -hmm. really early on 
all because they didn't get enough exposure to the right bacterial That's compounds amazing. in utero. Amazing. Kiran, this, I'm so glad you touched on that. Thank you for going over with us. Like this, oh my gosh, I am just like on fire right now with all this information because it's so amazing. important. And we literally got the best of the best information from like the best of the best brains on the planet in this industry. So what a treat, Kiran. Like you are a gift to this planet. You're a gift to this podcast and to our audience. Thank you so much for your expertise and your time. And uh, Gina, thank you for being here. And we'll catch you guys next week. Sorry to cut everything short. If people need to find out more information, Kiran, how do they find out more about Microbiome Labs? Just your website. I mean, I talk about you guys all the time and I have podcasts that I'll put in the, in the show notes, but how can people yeah. learn more? Yeah, yeah, definitely come to our website, microbiomelabs.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you can reach out to me on social media. I try to engage with people as much as I can on social media That's as well. Amazing. Both on my personal page, which is, uh, I think it's Kiran, K-I-R-A-N, Biome, B-I-O-M-E. Mm-hmm. That's on Instagram. And then if you just put my name, Kiran Krishnan, on Facebook, you'll find it. Of course, Microbiome Labs is also on Instagram and, and Facebook. Uh, and then lastly, if you want to hear more interviews and discussions around the microbiome, you want to learn specific topics. If you just put my name in YouTube, you'll find hundreds upon hundreds of videos that people have kindly uploaded from Beautiful. all the interviews I've done over the last several years. You can even go as far as putting my name and a specific topic like autoimmune or mm, weight or you know, skin. And you'll find very specific interviews. So yeah, uh, feel free to reach out. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. And we'll get you guys next week. Take care. Thanks. Hey, everybody. To celebrate our relaunch, we are actually doing our very first giveaway on the podcast. And as many of you know, Gina Warfel and myself have created this incredible online program and membership that takes you through the order of healing and teaches you how to become your own healing champion. The purpose of that is to help you rely on yourself and your own knowledge versus having to rely on doctors entirely when it comes to healing your body. We're giving away two memberships to this program, and it's really easy to enter. If you are ready to become your own healing champion and take 2022 by the horns and have this be your year for healing, this is how you can enter our giveaway. First, go and follow our new Instagram page, which is at Gutsy Health Podcast. And then second, all you have to do is leave the podcast a review. Easy, right? Now go to kite.link forward slash GHP and submit that review and entry now. Again, that is K-I-T-E dot link forward slash GHP and you can leave a review and that's it. That's how you enter the giveaway. We hope to see you in the membership and we hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for listening to the Gutsy Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed and learned a lot from this episode. For more updates, follow us on Instagram at Gutsy Health Podcast. 